Welcome to Podcast with Lara Axtell, a seasoned educator of 26 years. Podcast is brought to you by Reading Horizons, the creator of a data-driven literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. Visit readinghorizons.com to learn more. And now, Podcast with your host, Lara Axtell. Welcome to our final episode of Season 2. I'm Laura Axtell, your host, and this episode of Podcast is an extensive conversation with Dr. Louise Spear Swirling. Dr. Swirling has spent the last 40 years as professor in the Department of Special Education and Reading at Southern Connecticut State University, where she served as the area coordinator for the Graduate Program in Learning Disabilities. Now Professor Emerita, Dr. Swirling has written several books and numerous articles on reading and teacher education and continues to provide workshops and consulting. Today, Dr. Swirling covers a range of valuable topics that include explaining the various literacy approaches and types of reading instruction, detailing the structured literacy approach and how it differs from the practices at many schools, the intervention needs of students with dyslexia, and consideration for teacher education and improving reading instruction systemically. Dr. Swirling, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, My pleasure. So we're going to jump into some questions that I think will be very valuable to many people out there who are really interested in the field of literacy but may be confused. There are so many terms to describe the types of literacy instruction. Could you begin by explaining the differences between leveled literacy, balanced literacy, and structured literacy? So leveled literacy and balanced literacy are often used to refer to approaches that are typical in general education instruction. They're not universal, but they're probably the most common practices. And I would say they refer to different aspects of the same approach. So let me say something about balanced literacy first. Balanced literacy is generally used to convey the idea that you have a balance of instruction that addresses both basic foundational reading skills such as phonics and decoding and vocabulary and comprehension. And that sounds good. (laughs) You know, it sounds appealing on the surface, but the way the approach Most investigators of reading would completely agree that all five important components of literacy need to be addressed in instruction, but balanced literacy often translates into really short shrifting foundational skills that are very important in the early stages of literacy and critical for students with dyslexia and other decoding problems. In balanced literacy, teachers often use what are called leveled readers, and most often these are readers that are leveled according to things like sentence lengths, but they're not leveled in relation to decodability. So, for example, the beginning leveled readers, they might say things like, you know, Uh, Maria is getting ready for school. She is looking for her pencil, and you have a picture of a girl looking for a pencil. And then the next page says, she is looking for her crayons. And then the next page says, she's looking for her sweater. So really what it promotes is the child learning, you know, sight words like is and guessing based on the picture because the picture 
shows you whether it's a sweater or a pencil or crayons. And um, while there are certainly many children that learn to read adequately in these approaches, they're not good approaches for any child that has a vulnerability to decoding problems. And structured literacy, which is the last approach that you mentioned, uh, really can benefit all children, um, but is particularly critical for children who are at risk or have a vulnerability to reading problems. And could you talk a little bit about those essential components that are included in structured literacy? Sure. So in structured literacy, instruction is explicit and systematic. Explicit means that the teacher directly teaches important skills, models them, explains them with well-chosen examples. So children are not expected to develop important skills just from exposure or from, you know, incidental type of teaching activities. Also, systematic means that instruction is organized according to a logical sequence of skills and also, you know, pays attention to what we know about children's literacy development. So, for example, in a structured literacy approach, um, we're not going to expect children to read words like author and illustrator if they can't read cat. And we're going to have things organized so that simple short vowel words, so-called CVC words like um, man and lap and pin are taught before more complex words with, you know, five or six phonemes like splint, for example. So that's just one example, but you would have instruction organized according to prerequisite types of skills. So starting with simple and moving to more complex. Correct. So that kind of begs the question, if we know that there's lots of research that supports this specific structured literacy, why do you think that isn't being implemented more effectively in districts? I would say, you know, this is rarely ever the decision of individual classroom teachers. It's almost always the decision of district administrators. It could be different district administrators depending on the school district. But what I see often happens is that the administrators don't always have the training to really, you know, they're, they're not necessarily in their position because they're literacy specialists. If the literacy specialist is the one making the decision, sometimes those people have good training and sometimes they don't. One of the things I saw a lot with regard to the Common Core Standards, for example, is that a program would promote itself as, uh, you know, addressing the Common Core Standards and being really strong in that area. But when you look at the different components of the program, it's really not addressing foundational skills in a systematic way. So the people that are making these choices for districts, you know, need to need to have the expertise to really look at different programs that might be being used to consider the extent to which they're consistent with research. And then another thing I should mention in relation to this, and I think this is variable by state, but in my state, it's very common for districts to not really use structured materials or programs 
which I think is not a reasonable expectation of teachers. So the teacher's job, whether they're a general education teacher or a special education teacher, their job should be to implement the curriculum well and to differentiate for children with different needs. It shouldn't be their job to devise curriculum or materials. And that's extremely difficult to do especially in the area of decoding. It it not only takes a lot of knowledge and skill, but it's really practically not very feasible for teachers that have many other demands on them. So really, that kind of leads to trying to get a better understanding of to what extent does the type of literacy instruction make a difference for, for example, that generally 60% of students who are typical readers, does it matter that much for them? I think it matters less for them than it does, of course, for a child that really has a vulnerability, but I think it still matters. So I think a good analogy here is with uh, having good public health practices. So if you think of good public health practices like having clean air, clean water, routine vaccination, well baby care, screening for common health conditions, those kinds of practices might make an even bigger difference for a child that has you know, some sort of health vulnerability like asthma or a health vulnerability to a specific type of illness. Similarly, you know, in education, it makes a difference when you have these good practices in place because just as a child who is being, you know, vaccinated, you might prevent them from getting an illness that has, you know, adverse consequences that last long term. If you have good educational practices in literacy in place, you can prevent problems from developing in some children, so-called, you know, curriculum casualties. Another consideration is we don't always know in advance which children are going to have problems. So there are important risk indicators that schools should pay attention to for dyslexia. For example, if a child uh, has a family history of dyslexia, or if they have a history of early language delay, those are very important risk factors that schools should be using in making decisions about children getting intervention and and early identification and things like that. However, you know, just like a person could develop diabetes without having a prior family history of diabetes, some children do have reading problems that when there's no, you know, identified family history. So if you're using good general education practices to teach literacy, and if you're using universal screening to try to identify children early, that can help us pick up children who's problems might not otherwise be identified until they were more entrenched types of difficulties. So you've already talked about this some, but I'm going to ask you the same question for struggling readers or those students who may have risk factors for dyslexia. How much of a difference does it make which type of literacy instruction and intervention is provided to them? I'll answer this question both in terms of general education practices and special education. So in general education, if good literacy practices are being used, including RTI types of practices like 
universal screening and provision of prompt intervention and things like that. That can ameliorate the difficulties of students with disabilities. So it doesn't mean that some of them are not eventually going to need special education, but they will most likely not be as far behind when they get identified. So for example, I recently did a school consultation on a high school student who was reading at a second to third grade level who clearly had dyslexia. This is the type of student that with early identification, she really has dyslexia and I think would always have needed special education instruction and supports, but I don't think we would have an adolescent who's reading at a second grade level with those kinds of early supports. Another thing I should mention is that there are some general education practices that are popular that can be really counterproductive for students with dyslexia. And, and again, this is not really the general education teacher's fault. It's a function of how they are trained. So um, many general education teachers are trained to encourage children to use sentence context and pictures in order to guess at words in decoding. Well, that sort of encourages a strategy that is maladaptive in the long run. Really what teachers want to encourage is for children to look carefully at words and apply decoding skills. But it is a strategy that if you have a student that is you know, pretty verbal, like many children with dyslexia are, and is good at using context, it can work for them in beginning level text it won't work for them in more advanced texts where there are no pictures and the books become much more complex. But sometimes by that point, the child has this habit and disposition to over-rely on context, and it can become a very hard habit to break. I mentioned also, you know, I would address special education. So in special education, first of all, we don't want special educators using those same kind of practices that don't work, right? So that would be one really important thing. In special education, I think one thing that is often not recognized, both in special education and general education, is that post national reading panel research really favors phoning level approaches to phonics teaching, not, for instance, uh, word families or even onset rhyme. So in a word families approach, children might get word families like sack, back, tack, pack, and then they learn the words as patterns, and the theory is that then that will help them decode a new word by analogy, like shack. But the problem with that is, if you've ever used those kinds of approaches with children, very often what they do is, once they know the word family, they just look at the first letter or first couple of letters. So, and they don't necessarily generalize those skills to reading other related types of words. So it's not a good approach, particularly for children who tend to struggle with phonemic awareness and other phonological skills, but I would argue it's not really a great approach even for typical children. And an onset rhyme approach 
you use linguistic units, onsets, and rhymes. That So for the shack example, children would learn that SH says sh, and that the rhyme ACK says ack, and then they read shack by blending sh, ack, shack. In a phoneme level approach, they learn SH says sh, a says a, CK says k, and then they blend three parts, sh, a, k, shack. So the difference between onset rhyme and a phoneme level approach is mainly in the blending demands. In a phoneme level approach, you are making greater demands on phoneme blending, and that can be more difficult at first for some children. But in an onset rhyme approach, you ultimately have to transition to a phoneme level approach anyway because you you know you can't read words like carpet or transportation using onsets and rhymes so you ultimately have to transition to that level and the research that i have seen susan brady has reviewed this research quite compellingly i think that it benefits children to have a focus on phoneme level teaching right from the start. So I think that it's particularly important for special educators to know about that since they often work with children who struggle with the code. But again, I think even in general education, many children benefit from that type of emphasis. We'll be right back. Podcast is sponsored by Reading Horizons the creator of a data-driven literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. With data-informing software and teacher-led instruction, students receive targeted intervention that leads to rapid reading improvement. Visit readinghorizons.com demo to see if Reading Horizons is right for your school. I would really like you to speak to this issue, which is that often the goal, of course, is to provide effective reading instruction at tier one, which is the whole classroom. But many students will need intervention or in some cases, as you mentioned, special ed. But often what happens is interventionists are told they must use some entirely different program or approach. And many students who struggle then have to navigate between what they're doing in a, in a general classroom Right. And now they're learning a whole new system, a whole new approach, a whole new language. And often what they just need is more practice, more intensity. So I think a fundamental problem here is the nature of general education instruction, um, at least in many schools, as we discussed before. Often to meet the needs of students with dyslexia and other students in special education who do tend to require even more than other students highly explicit systematic instruction, you do have to do something different because what is happening in a general education setting is really not suited to these students' needs. So I think that sometimes school officials understand this without necessarily recognizing the deeper issue that if we used structured literacy types of practices in general education, then we would have more continuity with what students get in special education. Students in special education might still need something different, but what many 
children would need more is greater intensity. You know, that they would need more intensity, like a smaller group size, more opportunities for practice, things like that, as opposed to a completely different type of approach. So could you talk a little bit about what you really see as the intervention needs of students specifically with dyslexia? So these students definitely need a focus on foundational skills such as decoding, spelling, and once they have built some accuracy of reading, an emphasis on reading fluency. Fluency, as you know, many investigators have pointed out that you could think of fluency on subskills as well as text reading. So certainly to become automatic in things like a knowledge of letter sounds and ability to decode common words and things like that are, you know, very important. Many of these children will need phonemic awareness instruction in order to begin initial levels of decoding. Phonemic awareness is a common area of weakness in many students with dyslexia, although it's not universal. Another area that has begun to get more attention in research is the idea of advanced phonemic awareness intervention, which David Kilpatrick has written about and quite compellingly reviewed research studies on this and made the argument that advanced phonemic awareness plays a role in automaticity, in orthographic mapping, which then affects children's ability to have automatic word recognition. And it it is very common that you see children who, even with good phonics instruction, don't necessarily transfer those skills as much as we would like to real word reading. So, for example, a child's word attack as measured by a nonsense word reading measure may be well within average range, but real word reading is still below average. And then that affects the child's ability to read fluently in text. So I I would say to practitioners to, you know, consider assessment of advanced phonemic awareness in children that are showing this pattern and integration of those types of activities to build it or, you know, even doing it preventively for some children. That's really helpful. Let's talk a little bit. You mentioned the high school student who clearly had characteristics of dyslexia, but the schools are finding it a little hard to navigate the use of the term or even, you know, putting in place practices to help recognize it when, in fact, they don't diagnose dyslexia. Um, that's typically done outside. And a school would not generally classify a student for special ed, for example, with dyslexia because they have the term specific learning disability and reading. So how does that all work together? Right. Well, let me just say, I think there's a lot of variability by state. Some states do make dyslexia a completely separate category or the diagnosis may get done primarily by, you know, outside evaluators and clinicians. But in Connecticut, for example, where I live, the guidelines on specific learning disabilities, and there are two categories. So the child, with with regard to learning disabilities, the child could be identified with SLD, specific learning disability, or SLD slash dyslexia. 
So if you had a child, for example, who had a pattern that was more like specific reading comprehension disability, where decoding is good, but reading comprehension is nonetheless still impaired, the appropriate classification would be SLD. If the child has features of dyslexia um, and there are, you know, specific measures that school districts are recommended to use, such as measures of phonological processing like the CTOP, certainly you would want measures of decoding, real word reading, fluency, spelling, things like that. The district can identify students with dyslexia. This is sort of a more recent, you know, last few years type of development, but it has started to be done here and I believe is being done in some other states, although not universally. And so a school psychologist, for example, as part of their battery could actually provide those types of assessments that would lead to a dyslexia classification. Yes, I, a child would be identified as eligible for special education in the category of SLD dyslexia. Huh, that's great. And I do think it's helpful, you know, as I mentioned, some states have dyslexia as a separate category from specific learning disabilities. And I do think it sort to me makes more sense to have it under the umbrella category of learning disabilities because First of all, that's really how most researchers would conceptualize it. And the basic criteria for learning disabilities, such as, you know, low achievement, the child has to meet exclusionary criteria, et cetera, those are all criteria that would be used as part of dyslexia identification. It's just that with dyslexia, you're looking for a specific pattern of academic weaknesses in reading that revolve around decoding, phonemic awareness, reading fluency, as opposed to, you know, language comprehension. So as you've discussed, there are many benefits for students to receive structured literacy as part of regular instruction and intervention, but many teachers may not have had that preparation when they were in schools of education. So could you speak to that just a bit? How do we get there? How do we get more access to the kinds of instruction they need? Right. So many people who are interested in reading have, have recognized this problem of teachers not being adequately prepared. And I've worked in teacher preparation for close to 40 years now, and, and here's what I've seen. I have had some wonderful colleagues, people who are very well informed and aware of the research. A big problem, though, is that good teacher preparation practices are not systemic. It's a little bit like the situation with K-12 to children um, where, you know, you could have a, 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 an individual teacher who's, you know, teaching phonics and decoding skills and other foundational skills really well, but if the teacher next door is teaching you know, multiple queuing systems and guessing based on the picture, that is going to undermine the overall effectiveness. Or if a teacher, if a child has one teacher like that one year and then the other teacher the next year, their progress is going to be undermined. So I think that the big issue is to try to make good teacher preparation practices more systemic. And I unfortunately don't, don't have any, you know, magic solutions to suggest, but I have seen a number of things that seem to be very helpful. 
for example, Marty Haugen and her colleagues developed these higher education collaboratives where teacher educators and researchers, you know, collaborated together. Researchers presented basic research on reading and resources for teacher educators. And I'm sure teacher educators also had things that they contributed to the researchers. And that did, um, in, in, uh, I believe it was originally done in Texas, that was helpful in improving teacher preparation. Another thing I think is very important is that we have some of our new faculty that are coming out of good research institutions like, for example, you know, University of Texas at Austin and um, Florida Center for Reading Research and a number of other really strong preparation programs. We need to have people induced to go into teacher preparation as their life's work. And often the thing that kind of carries more prestige is doing research. And doing research is really important, and there's a place for that too. But if you don't have the the knowledgeable, well-prepared people going into teacher preparation, then, you know, there's a, a, a fundamental piece of expertise that's missing. And we also need people that have some experience with children and in classrooms. So ideally, you have people going into teacher prep who, you know, have some practical experience with children and understand what it's like working in schools and classrooms, but also have really strong research preparation. Another thing that I think was helpful in my own state, and this is, again, not it's not about doing any one thing. It's a whole set of things that need to be done to ensure good preparation in teachers. My state, a number of years ago, adopted an exam for teacher licensure that addressed research-based knowledge about reading. And this is only one policy measure, but in my experience, it was a particularly important policy measure because it created a practical imperative for higher ed to address certain content. Otherwise, their candidates were failing the licensure exam. So it's got to be the right exam. If it's a bad exam, then you're kind of leading teacher preparation in the wrong direction. But a good exam, a good licensure exam is one piece that can be very helpful. So the last thing I would say here about teacher preparation is we know from many authorities in the field and certainly people like Louisa Motes, people who have raised concerns about this for a long time, that teacher preparation should be viewed as a process of professional development. And even the best pre-service preparation program is not going to prepare people for a lifetime. Rather, it's more like medical education. You give people strong, you know, initial preparation, but they have to have ongoing professional development that keeps them abreast of you know, new developments, new scientific findings, issues that are pertinent to the populations that they're working with, and so on. And one of the things I see, you know, I worked in teacher preparation for many years, and I I believe that we gave our students strong preparation, but sometimes they would go into schools where the in-service professional development was directly at odds 
with what we had trained them to do. So we were training them to implement systematic phonics, and they would be going into schools where they were using, you know, leveled readers, and school practices encouraged guessing at words based on context, and they weren't necessarily using the right assessments that they had been trained to use that would help you identify children early. So the schools have an important role to play here in terms of providing good ongoing professional development for teachers. That's such a great point to to bring up. So based on everything you know, your, you know, years of experience and the work that you continue to do, are you hopeful? I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. Sometimes it feels like two steps forward and one step back. And sometimes it's frustrating. And I think a lot of us who work in uh, the field feel this way. But on the other hand, first of all, we learn more all the time. We uh, help children in reading, um, including children with serious types of learning problems. There's something about working with children and also working with teachers that's intrinsically meaningful, you know the work is important. And we do see areas of progress. I do see people, more people going into teacher preparation as teacher educators who had a good scientific foundation in reading themselves. And there are certainly, you know, efforts like I, I mentioned the teacher ed collaborative work that Marty Haugen and her colleagues have done. The Cedar Center at University of Florida does excellent work in teacher preparation and research-based teacher preparation. So the International Dyslexia Association is developing initiatives for good teacher preparation and certification through the Center for Effective Reading Instruction, or CERI. So, so there is certainly reason for optimism. Progress is not always as rapid as one would like, but I do believe there's progress and there are certainly many reasons to be optimistic about the future. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and just some really great options and things that are happening out there in this field. It has been a pleasure. Thanks to Dr. Spear Swirling for sharing her expertise and to all of the experts and guests who joined us this season. We have some exciting episodes coming in Season 3, and you won't want to miss them. You can be notified of new episodes by subscribing at readinghorizons.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Podcast. To be notified when future episodes are available, subscribe to Podcast on iTunes. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review. To submit discussion topics or to recommend a student, parent, educator, or expert to be interviewed on future episodes, visit readinghorizons.com slash podcast. Podcast is sponsored by Reading Horizons. Visit readinghorizons.com slash trial for 14 days of free access to our software. Reading Horizons. Reading is for everyone.